Just a quick update before we jump into our next episode. Thanks to Audible, you can get a free audiobook just for being a listener of our show. In the spirit of transparency, we receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. I only recommend books that I have personally read or listened to. At the end of this episode, I'll drop my suggestion, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer opens the door to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And regardless of your decision to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 118 of History of the Marine Corps. Part 5 of our Guadalcanal and Tulagi series. Following the initial engagement with Ichiki, the Marines braced for more severe Japanese attacks. Despite limited resources, the Cactus Air Force, made up of Marine, Navy, and Army Air Force units, demonstrated remarkable resilience and efficiency. This episode explores the harsh realities at Henderson Field, from crude refueling methods to the vulnerability of the airfield from weather and enemy actions. Despite these challenges, significant progress was made in infrastructure and defense capabilities, enhancing the airfield's functionality and resilience. We also dive into a few battles and introduce the one and only Chesty Pooler as he leads his Marines against Japanese forces. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. General Vandergrift and his team knew that taking down the Ichiki force was just a temporary fix on Guadalcanal. They knew more intense Japanese attacks were on the way. Even though Marines started to receive more supplies, they were still scraping by. By month's end, the Cactus Air Force, which was made up of Marine, Navy, and Army Air Force units, grew significantly. The Marine Corps had 51 planes on the island while the Navy had 10 and the Army had 3. There were a total of 86 pilots on Guadalcanal. The Cactus Air Force did a great job, despite not having much gear. In the first 10 days of operations, U.S. pilots shot down 56 Japanese planes, at a cost of 11 American aircraft. By the end of August, things started to look better at the airfield. Marine engineers set up a lighting system using seized Japanese gear to mark the airfield for emergency night landings. They finally received some dump trucks and pneumatic tampers, which allowed them to fix a 500-kilogram bomb crater in 30 minutes. These trucks were always loaded with gravel and sand ready to go. As soon as Japanese bombers left Henderson Field, Squads of engineers would quickly head out to repair any damage. Regular patrol flights were also established. They kept an eye on Allied ships and jumped into action during Japanese air attacks. But despite improvements at Henderson Field, Marines still faced multiple challenges on top of Japanese attacks. 
Initially, refueling planes was a crude process, with drums of fuel hung in the rafters of unfinished Japanese hangars. Later, when gasoline trucks arrived, they still had to manually pump fuel from these drums. The lack of steel matting left the airfield vulnerable to unpredictable tropical weather. When it was hot and dry, Henderson Field was full of black dust, clogging the plane's engines. When it rained, that black dust would turn into sticky mud, making takeoffs difficult. When marine engineers and Seabees weren't busy patching bomb craters, they were constantly trying to fix the damage caused by early SBDs with hard rubber tailwheels. These wheels, designed for carrier landings, tore up the Henderson runway. The poor condition of the field led to operational losses for the Cactus Air Force. Planes sometimes couldn't take off due to the mud, resulting in crashes at the runway's end. Ruts and potholes were a constant hazard on dry days. In one foggy incident, a landing plane collided with a bulldozer. Despite these hiccups, progress was still made. With increased aerial support, ground forces at Guadalcanal saw an improvement in intelligence, gaining valuable insights into Japanese landing patterns. Aerial reconnaissance revealed enemy reinforcements landing east and west of the perimeter, often at night. After the engagement with Ichiki, the Marines didn't have many operations that called for close air support, but they kept this option in mind when planning for future engagements. Air support was relatively new to the Marine Corps. Although Marines played around with air-ground support tactics in Nicaragua, it was still a relatively new strategy. The main issue they faced was communication. They relied on visual signals, like colored panels, but these were ineffective. The aircraft's altitude and speed made reading these signals difficult compared to practices in Nicaragua. In Guadalcanal's thick jungle, it was often impossible for pilots to spot these signals. The Marines were aware of the development of colored smoke grenades in the United States and considered them potentially useful for air-ground communication. But their primary interest was radios, for more efficient coordination. The division's existing radios were not fit for this purpose. It wasn't until October that Vandergrift appointed an officer equipped with suitable radios and staff to train as some of the first air forward observers. Each infantry regiment would have these observers, which initiated a crucial method in marine warfare. Towards the end of the month, Japanese destroyers landed forces at Tassafaranga, and further landings occurred at Tassimboko, demonstrating a growing pattern of nighttime operations. Vandergriff brought in more support to help in Guadalcanal. By this time of the operation, Marines had reasonable control over Tulagi, so he transferred 2-5 on August 21st, followed by the 1st Raider Battalion and the 1st Parachute Battalion 10 days later. In early September, a segment of the 5th Defense Battalion landed at Tulagi, and a 90mm battery from the 3rd Defense Battalion joined its main unit near Henderson Field. An operation occurred near the Mantanacau River on August 27th, with the planned attack by 1-5, commanded by Lt. Col. William E. Maxwell, 
supported by artillery. But the exact plans for this mission weren't clear. During the operation, the battalion encountered difficult terrain. Marines faced a series of low, coral cliffs. These cliffs formed the seaward fronts of a ridge system that ran parallel to the beach. The ridges were split by deep ravines, filled with dense jungle, opening onto the flat land. Movement along these ridges required navigating a series of these cross ravines, which was made more challenging by cutting through the thick jungle in each ravine. These conditions, coupled with a lack of radios for communication, caused companies to lose contact with each other. Communication breakdowns in the punishing terrain caused further issues, with messengers succumbing to the heat before reaching their destination. Japanese forces had dug themselves in a narrow corridor, about 200 yards wide. As Bravo Company approached, enemy forces opened up with machine guns and mortar fire. Delta Company immediately set up a firing line and began firing at the base of the cliffs, while Charlie was ordered to flank the enemy on their left. The lack of communication and rugged terrain, Charlie's company maneuver failed. Maxwell realized the impracticality of his orders due to the formidable enemy defenses and challenging terrain. Maxwell requested his Marines be extracted by boat, but leadership had different goals. After a delay and a partial withdrawal, Maxwell was relieved of command, and his unit was transferred to O'Connell, the next senior Marine, with orders to continue the offensive. The following day, the Marines continued their advance, but soon realized that the enemy had retreated. The battalion regrouped and returned to their base. By early September, enemy forces were positioned around the island. 2,990 were east of the perimeter, between Taivu Point and Tassimboko. Critical military units and significant enemy reinforcements were arriving nightly. Most were with the Kawaguchi Detachment, who were in the process of cutting a path through the jungle to position itself for an assault on the airfield. There were also 2,200 enemy soldiers west of the perimeter, made up of the infantry, naval forces, and pioneer troops. Despite being aware of increased enemy activity, Marine forces lacked detailed information on the extent and movement of the enemy troops particularly those newly arrived. The 1st Marine Air Wing's command echelon landed with Brigadier General Roy S. Geiger, establishing close communication with ground forces. Aviators had to adapt to equipment shortages. Innovative solutions were employed, including manual bomb loading and dual microphone radio systems to communicate across different service branches. General Geiger, renowned for his leadership, never lost focus on the ground conflict. He frequently visited frontline positions. His study of ground tactics was profound, which would follow him to his eventual command of the 10th Army after General Buckner died in Okinawa. On September 7th, the 1st Raider Battalion set sail from Kukum and the 1st Parachute Battalion prepared to move to Lunga Point. As ship-to-shore movement commenced, U.S. troops were extremely careful to keep the element of surprise. The landing craft traveled slowly to reduce the exhaust noise. 
but as the boats were approaching the beach, there was an accidental discharge of a rifle. Luckily, the enemy was not alerted, and the element of surprise remained intact. By 8.55, Edson reported contacting the enemy, and Marines had overrun two enemy artillery pieces. Two and a half hours later, he checked back in, and confirmed that a few other artillery pieces had been taken, and that the Marines were advancing slowly, despite heavy enemy opposition, estimated to be around 1,000 strong. The 1st Parachute Battalion, after being lost for an hour, eventually joined the Raiders, and together they captured the village, finding that the main Japanese forces had already retreated. Intelligence later revealed that based on the food, equipment, and ammunition, about 4,000 Japanese troops were in the area shortly before the attack. The additional U.S. ships may have led the Japanese to believe that a larger landing was occurring. The raiders' casualties were minimal during this engagement. They had two killed and six injured, but they inflicted significant damage and left the enemy base unusable, which impacted the upcoming Battle of the Ridge. The raid at Tassimboko proved to be a strategic success, even though the main enemy force wasn't annihilated. Native scouts reported large, well-organized enemy troop movements, which was a little different from the somewhat disorganized Ichiki detachment. By September 10th, the enemy, identified as the Kawaguchi Brigade, was advancing within five miles east and required urgent defensive measures for the inland perimeter. Japan began to increase bombardments on Guadalcanal in preparation for the upcoming battle. The attacks grew more consistent the following day, and 26 bombers with 8 fighters bombed the airfield, killing 11 Marines and wounding another 17. A P-400 was destroyed in the attack. Vandergrift had to deal with the problem of defending the inland sector of the perimeter again. Instead of a continuous line, Key terrain positions were fortified by any available unit. While most of the positions were occupied by rifle battalions, the 1st Amphibian Tractor Battalion helped by covering the west, the Engineer Battalion secured the right flank, and the Pioneers were positioned on a hill east of the Lunga River. Vandergrift relocated his command post to protect against enemy air raids. The Raiders and Parachute Battalion reoccupied a strategic ridge near the airfield, essential for defense. This terrain was challenging as well, with Guadalcanal's signature deep ravines and dense jungle surrounding it. Patrols by the raiders detected a sizable enemy force, and it became clear that an attack was coming soon. Edson sent his entire battalion on patrol to confuse the enemy and once they were spotted, the Marines fell back to prepared positions. Charlie Company was positioned by a lagoon, with the rest of the unit forming a defensive line supported by single-strand wire and mutually supportive strong points extending to the Lunga's right bank. Bravo Company was nearby, with reserves, Alpha, and Delta Companies behind them. Echo was stationed at the battalion command post. At 2100, a Japanese plane dropped a flare over Henderson Field, 
and 30 minutes later, four Japanese naval forces launched an intensive bombardment. As the flare began to extinguish, Kawaguchi advanced, launching a fierce two-battalion assault that eventually pushed back the raiders, threatening the defense perimeter. Bravo and Charlie companies also faced an aggressive attack, and Charlie's left flank platoon was cut off from the rest of the unit and driven back. Bravo was pushed out into the open. A third attack on Charlie cut off another platoon, allowing a small enemy force to work its way down the river and attempt to wipe out Charlie. Throughout the night, Edson worked tirelessly to restore the lines. By daylight, Alpha and Delta were sent up the right bank of the Lunga and attempted to push back Japanese forces. They were unsuccessful due to the enemy's fortified position and Delta Company's depleted ranks. Meanwhile, Bravo Company, unable to hold against further attacks, repositioned and received reinforcements from the 1st Engineer Battalion. Air engagements provided substantial support during the battle. Marine Air Wing reinforcements defended against a significant air assault, downing several enemy aircraft. 42 enemy planes attacked the perimeter. 21 Navy fighters and 11 Marine planes took out 16 enemy aircraft. Only one plane and one pilot were lost in the fight. Allied aviation did a phenomenal job at deterring the enemy. Only one of the four enemy air attacks was successful, with the others being repelled or aborted. The one that got through included two Japanese float planes that came in with a low-altitude strike and shot down an SBD. Anticipating further attacks, the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, held in reserves, prepared to support the weakening Raider Battalion. All company commanders conducted a survey of the area. At 1830, Kawaguchi's forces launched a concentrated attack against the center and right front of Edson's line, driving back platoons and creating gaps in the defense, but ultimately failing to capture the airfield. Bravo Company suffered a setback when the Japanese pushed back its right flank and created a gap with Alpha Company. The enemy then focused their attack on Bravo, where a Marine artillery battery of the 11th had earlier set up and calibrated their artillery for defense. A forward observer relayed a message that there appeared to be a strong concentration of enemy forces in the woods. Edson authorized the 11th Marines to fire on the target, pulling the barrage closer to within 200 yards of Bravo Company's position. The parachute battalion was attacked for the first time about 30 minutes later. They were hit with mortars and smoke grenades, which forced the two companies of Marines to fall back to the base of the ridge. Bravo Company was in a terrible situation. Its right flank was missing a platoon, and the left flank was exposed and unprotected. The reserve forces for the left flank were the parachute battalion, who were in the process of retreating. Edson relocated his command post to a prominent hill, overseeing the northern part of the ridge. He positioned Charlie Company, which served as the battalion reserve, around the western and southern slopes of the hill for defense. 
He ordered Bravo Company and its remaining 60 Marines to fall back and arranged forces around the defensive setup. Marines had to fall back in the pitch black, moonless night. More than likely, they wouldn't have made it if they weren't supported by artillery. The battalion batteries used the Japanese soldiers' flares as a signal for an oncoming attack. They fired 1,992 rounds of 105mm shells below minimum range. They placed standing barrages ahead of the Marines at all points, stopping the enemy from advancing. After the company was in position, artillery was pulled even further, creating a wall ahead of the raiders' positions for the rest of the night. Rifles and automatic weapons eliminated the few enemy troops penetrating the lines. Those who survived were dealt with hand-to-hand. When World War II kicked off, rumors spread of an invincible Japanese force. Those rumors were put to bed that night, as Kawaguchi's forces were destroyed. Now that the Marines had breathing room, 2-5 was moved up to reinforce the left flank. George Company, also known as Golf Company in today's phonetic alphabet, was the first to arrive under intense enemy machine gun fire. They filled in the gaps of the Raider Battalion and were in position before Kawaguchi's final assault. When morning hit, most of Kawaguchi's forces were gone south of the ridge. The remaining stragglers were hunted down by Marines and wiped out. P-400s from the 67th Squadron strafed any remaining enemy soldiers. This comprehensive resistance led to the failure of the Japanese efforts to retake Guadalcanal. A Japanese officer later recounted the end of the battle, quote, Intensive bombing and strafing followed our unsuccessful attack at dawn, and our efforts to take the field are doomed to failure, unquote. The Japanese 1st Battalion of the 124th Infantry was initially repelled, but were able to keep a steady firefight from the jungle's edge. By dawn, they had artillery in place, which prompted the Marines to send in light tanks from the 1st Tank Battalion. Six tanks advanced towards enemy lines without infantry support. This turned out to be a disaster. Two tanks were immediately hit by a Japanese anti-tank gun, and another tank plunged over a 30-foot bank and into the Tenaru. All four crew members died. A fourth tank was taken out by an anti-tank gun shortly after. The fifth tank fell back to the defensive line, and the sixth was stopped by a wrecked track 50 yards in front from the Japanese gun. The men in this tank managed to escape and returned to the defensive line. Marines suffered a staggering 20% loss during the Battle of Edson's Ridge, with 31 killed, 103 wounded, and 9 missing. In contrast, over 600 Japanese bodies were recovered in that area alone, not including those killed in other operations or those who succumbed to their wounds while retreating. Japan also lost over 200 by 3rd Battalion 1st Marines and an unknown number by 3-5. According to documents and information from Japanese prisoners, over 1,500 casualties were suffered by Japan. Artillery support was crucial during this battle, 
with observers and liaison officers coordinating fire, which included 1,992 rounds from 105mm howitzers and 878 rounds from 75mm pack howitzers. Edson's raiders were relieved by 2-5 and fell back to the rear for much-needed rest. The 1st Parachute Battalion left Guadalcanal shortly after this fight. Edson and Major Kenneth D. Bailey of Charlie Company were awarded the Medal of Honor for their exceptional leadership during the battle. Edson was recognized for his composure and tactical acumen under fire, while Bailey displayed remarkable leadership and courage despite being wounded by staying at the forefront and motivating his troops. He was awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously. After the Battle of the Ridge, Marines resumed active patrols around the perimeter to prevent surprise enemy attacks. The patrols varied from small reconnaissance groups to full battalion-sized combat missions, and all offensive actions before November were essentially patrol-based to maintain the perimeter. On September 18th, the 7th Marines, 4,262 strong, landed and rejoined the division. Task Force 65 also arrived with 3,823 drums of aviation fuel, 147 vehicles, 1,012 tons of rations, 90% of the 7th Marine's supplies and engineering equipment, 86% of the organizational equipment, and nearly all of the ammunition Marines would need to fight the Japanese. The additional reinforcements and supplies allowed Vandergriff to consider expanding the scope of operations. This strategic shift was also supported by the increasing air support from Geiger's Cactus Air Force, which allowed the Marines to engage the enemy far from Henderson Field and supported the defense of the vital airfield. Quote, This accretion of force required us to re-examine and readjust our plans in accordance with improved circumstances in the light of lessons learned from the bitter fighting of mid-September. Ten infantry battalions and one raider battalion were now available on Guadalcanal. These were supported by four battalions of artillery, a nearly complete defense battalion, a small provisional tank battalion, and a growing air force. Unquote. Operation Order 11-42 laid out a comprehensive plan for the perimeter defense, which now included specialized beach defense units and rifle battalions for the more exposed inland areas. The perimeter was split into 10 sectors, with rifle battalions manning 7. The increase in manpower allowed for a better division of labor, with the Pioneer Battalion, engineers, and the amphibian tractors performing their routine jobs instead of fighting on the front lines. The improved situation also allowed General Vandergriff to consider moving from a purely defensive stance to a more active and aggressive defense. The defensive line was extended to cover strategic river crossings at the Matanikau River to the west and the Tenaru to the east. Despite initial concerns about an undetected enemy gathering south of the airfield, the problematic terrain made it challenging for an attacking force to bring in heavy weapons and logistics, turning the terrain into an advantage for the Marines. The new defensive strategy involved two types of positions, in-depth defenses on the grassy ridges west of the Lunga 
using the high ground, and a barricade to the east near the Tenaru, where the jungle made an in-depth defense impractical. This barricade consisted of a continuous wire barrier, supported by fighting holes and weapon emplacements, stored food and ammunition, and mobile reserve units placed along the line to respond to enemy penetration. Marine patrols confirmed intelligence estimates that there was a robust Japanese force on the river's west bank. The 7th Marines planned a series of attacks to clear that sector. Japanese troops in that section included the 4th Infantry Regiment, the 2nd Division, and other personnel from Kawaguchi's force. The first action against this enemy force would be handled by the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, commanded by the man himself, Lieutenant Colonel Lewis B. Pooler, also known as Chesty. On September 23rd, Pooler and his Marines headed to Mount Austin. It was unknown at the time, but as the Marines were heading towards the grassy knoll, enemy reinforcements were being brought in. The rest of the 4th and 29th Infantry landed by the end of the month. Another 600 troops were brought in to replace the 124th Infantry, which lost almost its whole 1st Battalion after the assault on 3-1. To understand the enemy's strength, the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, inspected the hills while the 1st Raider Battalion moved west across the river to establish a patrolling base. On the 24th, Chesty's battalion ran into an enemy camp. The surprised Japanese force fought back for a while, but scattered before night. Seven Marines were killed in this engagement, 25 were wounded and 18 of those required stretchers. The stretchers needed to evacuate Marines required a lot of support, and Vandergrift estimated that it would take 100 men to move the stretchers through the thick jungle, while also providing protection against potential enemy soldiers still hiding. Since Pooler had extensive jungle experience in Nicaragua, Vandergrift trusted his decision to either continue his mission or withdraw. Chesty decided to push on. Vandergrift reinforced Pooler's battalion with 2-5. When the reinforcements arrived, Chesty sent Alpha and Bravo companies to carry back the wounded Marines, and he continued his mission. When the patrol reached the mouth of the river, they discovered a strong Japanese resistance on the west bank. Two companies from 2-5 tried to cross, but were pushed back and pinned down by automatic weapons. Pooler called in air support and artillery, but the additional support didn't cause much damage to the enemy. Two hours into the battle, the patrol suffered 25 casualties. Potentially, there was a large enemy force in front of the Marines. The 1st Raider Battalion was sent up the east bank of the Matanikau to attack the Japanese force's right flank. Chesty and his Marines continued to hold their positions at the mouth of the river and attacked the enemy across the waterway to support the raiders. Vandergrift put Edson in charge of this mission, and Pooler served as his executive officer. The operation started on September 27th, with the raiders crossing the river, but they encountered a strong Japanese force on the east bank. Heavy enemy fire wounded Colonel Griffith and killed Major Bailey, who earned the Medal of Honor recently during the Battle of Edson's Ridge. The raiders were pinned, 
preventing further movement. The operation stalled as a miscommunication led Division Headquarters to believe the Raiders had successfully crossed the river. Major Rogers led Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie companies of the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, by boat to cut off the enemy's retreat. The destroyer, USS Ballard, was also there for support to assist what they thought was an underway attack. But a Japanese air raid disrupted the communication, including Ballard's support. The Marines landed without opposition but soon faced mortar fire, which killed Major Rogers and wounded Captain Cox. But the battalion fought to the top of a ridge. It established a perimeter, but the Japanese began encircling them. The Marines could not coordinate with other units. They had limited mortar ammunition and no radio. Every unit involved was stopped by the enemy. 2-5 couldn't make headway at Matanikau's mouth. The raiders were stopped by a well-entrenched enemy, and the 1st Battalion's 7th Marines faced the full wrath of the Japanese troops. Seeing the complicated situation unfold at Matanikau, where his battalion was struggling, an SBD pilot, Lt. Dale M. Leslie, spotted a call for help that was laid out in white undershirts on the ground within the Marines' perimeter on the ridge, and he relayed that message to the 5th Marines. When Chesty heard this information, he returned to the main perimeter and obtained approval to evacuate his unit by sea. The USS Ballard, with Pooler on board, coordinated a skillful and courageous extraction of the battalion under enemy fire, using semaphore signals for communication due to radio failures. Multiple heroic actions took place on this day. To receive and send messages, Sergeant Robert D. Raysbrook exposed himself to heavy enemy fire to signal to the USS Ballard. Chesty, who was on the bridge of the ship, messaged back to Raysbrook ordering all his men to pull out to the beach. Raysbrook replied that their withdrawal route had been cut off. Chesty targeted the ship's guns to create a path to the beach for his Marines. Supporting fire took out enemy artillery as the Marines fought through the infantry to get to the ship. Raysbrook was awarded the Navy Cross for his actions. Supporting fire took out enemy artillery as the Marines fought through the infantry to get to the beach. Platoon Sergeant Anthony Mullinowski Jr. grabbed a Browning automatic rifle that was dropped in action and heroically covered the retreat of his company. He was overrun and killed by Japanese soldiers, but his actions allowed his company to reach the beach. He was awarded the Navy Cross. The battalion's withdrawal to the beach was challenging, with the landing craft's approach complicated by Japanese fire. However, the SBD pilot, Lieutenant Leslie, showed extraordinary bravery by guiding the landing craft to the beach and strafing enemy positions. The Coast Guard, who you rarely hear about in World War II, played a considerable role in Guadalcanal, including this battle. Enemy fire from the beach was intense, but signalman first class Douglas A. Monroe of the Coast Guard, the coxswain of a Higgins boat, maneuvered his craft to shield the others. As the Marines loaded their casualties, Monroe covered them with light machine guns on his boat. He ordered the other ships to leave first and continued to cover their withdrawal with his machine gun. He was eventually killed by enemy fire. 
One seven had 24 dead and 23 wounded from this engagement. The Raiders and 2-5 withdrew as well and had another 36 dead and 77 wounded. Between October 7th and 9th, the Marines focused on dismantling Japanese position west of the Matanikau. The primary goal was to disorient the enemy and prevent organized attacks on the Marine perimeter. Their strategy outlined in Operation Plan 2-42 involved a force consisting of the 5th Marines minus the 1st Battalion, 3rd Battalion 2nd Marines, with an attached scout sniper detachment, and the 7th Marines, minus the 3rd Battalion. They were complemented by artillery and air support. This large force was ordered to move out on 30 minutes' notice. Despite the failed attack earlier at the Matanikau, this strategy was roughly the same plan, with forces positioned on the east bank of the river and a planned crossing at the same point. The goal of the assault was to capture the high ground south of the Matanikau village. 3-5 led the advance, and they contained the enemy at their bridgehead. Several attempts by the Japanese to escape were stopped by Marine forces. Reinforcements from the 1st Raider Battalion were called in, as the enemy made desperate breakout attempts overnight. Heavy hand-to-hand fighting took place during this engagement. Most of the enemy force was destroyed, with 59 bodies being counted the next day. The Raiders suffered 12 killed and 22 wounded. There was a debate on the 9th regarding the next steps. Heavy rain delayed the main attack, which raised concerns about losing the element of surprise. Intelligence showed a significant enemy offensive was brewing, with increased activity spotted in Rabaul suggesting a possible landing on the perimeter or cutting off marine forces to the west. But despite these valid concerns, Vandergriff stuck to his command and postponed the attack due to the weather. Adjusting to this threat, Vandergrift modified his offensive plans. While the initial strategy included a westward push following a successful Matanikau operation, the new intelligence made this unfeasible because it left the perimeter undermanned. The focus shifted solely to destroying the village and the enemy forces within, with a quick withdrawal planned afterwards. When the attack began, the scout snipers, also known as the Whaling Group, based on the commanding officer Colonel William J. Whaling, secured the western Matanikau riverbank. At the same time, 2-7 pushed through resistance near a village to Point Cruz on their left, and the 1st Battalion faced stiff enemy forces on grassy ridges and ravines, where they encountered significant opposition on the coastal plains overlooking the ridges. After receiving orders from Colonel Sims to scout the coastal road, but avoid significant battles, Chesty directed artillery and mortar fire on enemy positions in ravines, disrupting their ability to counterattack and forcing them into the open where they were decimated by direct automatic weapon fire. This effective tactic continued until mortar ammunition was low, resulting in substantial but an unknown number of enemy losses. A Japanese soldier's diary later revealed a casualty count of 690 from the 4th Infantry alone. Pooler and his Marines continued to launch mortars at the enemy until ammunition ran low. He then joined the scout snipers, and other forces at Matanikau. The Marines' actions that day struck a significant blow to Japan, 
documents from a fallen Japanese officer showed that the enemy was preparing an offensive on the same day as the Marines' assault, with similar tactics aimed at the same locations, which the 1st Battalion disrupted. While Edson and Pooler were clearing Matanikau, the U.S. Navy was fighting the Battle of Cape Esperance, with Rear Admiral Norman Scott's Naval Task Force setting out to disrupt enemy supply lines and protect incoming reinforcements. The Navy clashed with Japanese forces in a surprise nighttime battle, where they managed to cross the T. This is a naval tactic, where a line of ships crosses in front of the line of enemy vessels. This formation allows the crossing fleet to bring all their guns to bear, while the enemy can only use the guns at the front of their ships. This gives a significant tactical advantage to the fleet that crosses the T. Despite sustaining damage to some boats, Scott's force inflicted heavier losses on the Japanese, sinking cruisers and destroyers, with further enemy vessels destroyed by airstrikes the following day. This battle marked the end of the Japanese Cruiser Division 6 as an operational force. To summarize the episode, in August 1942, Vandergrift and the Marines faced a critical challenge on Guadalcanal. Following their victory over Ichiki, they braced for more intense Japanese attacks. Even though Marines received additional supplies, they still had to rely on improvisation and resilience. Significant progress was made by the end of the month, especially by the Cactus Air Force, which was made up of Marine, Navy, and Army Air Force units. They operated under challenging conditions, with limited equipment and improvised refueling methods, but they managed to shoot down 56 Japanese planes in just 10 days. Henderson Field saw improvements as well, with engineers quickly repairing bomb damage and setting up lighting for emergency night landings. However, challenges persisted. Communication issues hindered air-ground coordination, a vital aspect of military operations. Initially, the Marines relied on primitive visual signals, which were often ineffective. It wasn't until October that suitable radios were introduced, significantly enhancing coordination. Japanese forces continued their attempts to recapture Guadalcanal landing troops at various points and increasing bombardments. Vandergrift reinforced his positions with additional battalions and improved artillery and air support in response. Notably, the arrival of Brigadier General Roy S. Geiger and the 1st Marine Air Wing's command echelon bolstered air-ground cooperation. The Marines executed several successful operations, despite numerous difficulties such as treacherous terrain and communication breakdown. These included a strategic raid at Tassimboko, which inflicted significant damage on Japanese forces, and the Battle of Edson's Ridge, where the Marines' resilience and tactical understanding led to a decisive victory against a formidable Japanese assault. The Marines also faced setbacks, such as losing tanks in an ill-fated assault and heavy casualties during various engagements. But they adapted, and their courage, exemplified in actions like the extraction of 1-7 under enemy fire, showcased their determination. Reinforcements and supplies continued to arrive, allowing Vandergrift to expand operations and strengthen defensive strategies. This included specialized beach defense units and in-depth defenses, using the terrain to the Marines' advantage. 
Throughout these operations, the Marines demonstrated remarkable adaptability, resilience, and tactical skill, overcoming numerous challenges to maintain control over Guadalcanal. Their actions not only thwarted Japanese efforts to retake the island, but also marked a turning point in the Pacific War. Showcasing the effectiveness of combined arms operations and laying the groundwork for future regional success. Thanks for listening. Aviation played a big role in Guadalcanal. Although I touched on the topic throughout our series, there's a lot more to the story. The Cactus Air Force, Air War over Guadalcanal is a comprehensive historical account that dives deep into one of the most pivotal air campaigns of the Pacific Theater. This detailed narrative focuses on the air battles over the island of Guadalcanal, where a makeshift assembly of Allied air power, famously known as the Cactus Air Force, played a crucial role in the campaign. The book begins with Guadalcanal, which was a major operation of the Pacific War and it details numerous air engagements portraying the dogfights and bombing missions with a keen sense of drama and authenticity. This book highlights the skill and bravery of the pilots and ground crews, who often had to work with limited resources, makeshift repairs, and under constant threats of enemy bombardment. The author often talks about the ingenuity and resilience of these men, whose efforts were pivotal in maintaining control of the airfield and the island. The book also dives into the tactical and technological aspects of the air war. It discusses the evolution of air combat tactics during the campaign and introduces new aircraft and technologies, which gradually shifted the balance in favor of the Allies. The Cactus Air Force also offers insights into the broader strategic implications of the Guadalcanal campaign. It highlights the successful defense of Henderson Field, and how it contributed significantly to the eventual Allied victory in the Pacific, marking the beginning of the end of Japanese expansion and the start of their strategic retreat. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.